Well, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue our study into this most interesting, most controversial, most profound section of Scripture, 1 Peter 3, verses 17 through 22. It was the year 333 BC, and Alexander the Great had just invaded Asia Minor and arrived at the central mountains of the town of Gurdium at the age of 23. Undefeated, But without a decisive victory either, this young warrior, Alexander the Great, was in need of an omen to prove to his troops and to his enemies that the outcome of his mission was possible, that he would be able to fully conquer the entire known world. And as he entered into the town of Gordium, Alexander was told of a legend, a legend connected to an ox cart that was situated in the temple of Zeus. The pole of the cart was tied to a wagon with an intricate knot. And there was a prophecy that said over a hundred years before that who could ever unfasten the knot would be the ruler of Asia, even the entire world. Of course, once the young king understood what was at stake, it was inconceivable that he wouldn't be the person to untie the legendary Gordian knot. As Alexander climbed the hill and approached the ox cart, a crowd of curious Macedonians gathered around and tried to worry and see what it would be that he would do if he would be able to undo the knot. And after he attempted over and over again to unfasten the knot, suddenly it seemed that his frustration turned into triumph. He decisively stepped back and cried out to all those in attendance, what does it matter but that I loosen it? And after taking a deep breath, he drew out his mighty sword, and in one powerful stroke, he severed the legendary knot in two. The crowd, stunned by what they had seen, then heard the young conqueror say out loud, I am the king. Now, I tell you that story this morning because we have come to another Gordian knot, if you will. A Gordian knot that's not attached to an ox cart in our case, but it's attached to a very specific passage of Scripture in 1 Peter. I say that because this morning we come to what I've told you before, as some consider the most difficult passage in the entire New Testament of Scripture. And though we all though we cannot say that like Alexander the Great, we, uh, the Great, we can just slice the complexities of these difficult interpretations in half, We do believe that over the time that we've had in these past few messages, at least we've kind of cut away from some of the confusion surrounding this teaching and perhaps might even have added some clarity on what it is that we believe the great apostle Peter was intending to communicate through the words we have before us. Today we find ourselves, as I said, in the section of 1 Peter 3 that invites us to grapple with some of the most interesting and provocative knots in the New Testament. We've titled this study the fourth time now, A Christology for Times of Calamity. A Christology for Times of Calamity. Because even though this section of chapter 3 is loaded with a vast interpretational differences, nevertheless, it is a message about how a right view of the Savior's sufferings should give us a right view of our own sufferings as well. It's in this way that the concluding part of chapter 3 is Christological. 
Christological. Christological meaning that the Apostle Peter wrote this very complicated portion of Scripture for the express purpose of deepening our understanding of the ministry of Jesus Christ towards us. He wanted the believers in Asia Minor, as well as the Christians that were suffering all throughout the world that came after them, to fully grasp the incredible link that is there between the purpose and the plan of the Savior's sufferings and the purpose and the plan of our present sufferings. And although the concepts in chapter 3 are incredibly theological, and I understand that, the purpose, ironically, for their showing up at this part in the argument is intensely practical. It was not read or written to be read like a theology lecture. It might feel that way at times, and it has. But rather, it was written to be a very practical encouragement to the first century believers who were drowning in the unjust treatment of an unbelieving world. It was written to be a harbor for the soul in times of trouble. It was written to be a safe haven for spiritual rest to those who are having to face the storms of persecution For their faith in Jesus Christ. And the way Peter decides to comfort these storm-weary travelers is through, listen to this, the logic of identification. The logic of identification. He wants them to be able to identify with all those wondrous individuals throughout biblical history who have, like them, also suffered unrighteously for the sake of God. He wants them to identify with all of those people and places and problems that have always confronted the people of God since the world began in an effort to make them endure their own suffering. And he does that first and foremost by helping them again identify with the unmatched example of suffering that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by placing before them how the example of the Lord Jesus, perfect submission to the Father during the greatest trial of his life, was to be the supreme motivation for their righteous living as well. Because he suffered as a man, they would have to suffer as men. Because he endured ill treatment by submitting to unrighteous authorities, they too would have to suffer ill treatment through submitting to unrighteous authorities. And just as he begins to gain some traction in this kind of Christological reasons why we're able to identify with Christ as a sufferer, he then does something that is the most unexplained, unexpected thing possible. He switches from the example about Christ and his sufferings and begins to subtly mention the righteous sufferings of another man named Noah. Noah was someone that Peter's sufferers could identify with in many, many ways. Noah, like them, lived in a world full of wicked men. Noah, like them, had decided to live his life for the glory of God. Noah, like them, was called to be a preacher of righteousness. Noah, like them, condemned the world's evil systems by faithfully clinging to what God had commanded him to do as unbelievers around him ridiculed his faith. Noah, you see, was very much like them. He was someone they could identify with. But then Peter throws a curveball into this whole argument. He begins in verse 20 to ever so subtly veer away from focusing about Noah and his family's righteousness and suffering to instead now to begin to focus on the ark that carried them and the water that surrounded the ark. So the question at this point, we'll read this in a second, is why would he do that? Why does he do that? 
Because he says, listen, it's a way for us to understand baptism. Baptism? Where's that coming from? Baptism? That's out of left field, somebody might say. Because, again, Peter is going to, as I'll show you, draw another means of identification for believers through this idea of baptism in a way that maybe we have never, ever thought of before or guessed. He's going to present to us a biblical view of baptism as seen through the example of Noah and the ark that rarely will you ever hear explained from a pulpit. But to establish this for you, I need to do some review. So if you're first time here, welcome. I'm going to do a little review, catch you up to speed as to exactly why it is this is so controversial. And I can do that by first reviewing the passage itself by reading it out loud. So go to 1 Peter 3, 17 through 22, and just listen as I read the passage so we can build some context for today's message. I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Verse 17, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing good rather than for doing wrong. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, if you have been with us, these four messages that we've been looking at this section of chapter 3, verses 17 through 22, I want to explain what it is that Paul, or what we, sorry, Peter is trying to tell us in this section by giving you a little bit of an overview of what we've covered. If you want a fuller explanation of this, you can just go to gracechurch.org and look for the Christology for Times of Calamity, part 1, 2, and 3. However, I still need to get you up to speed just even this morning in terms of the various ideas that we've been trying to explain while we've been going through this so it makes a greater sense for you so you can kind of undo this Gordian knot, if you will. Now, one reason for the knot in this passage and why it exists in different ways is because there's at least 18 different interpretations of this passage that come to us from some of the greatest theological minds of all history, all of which see their interpretations as the most likely one. Yet, what almost everyone agrees on of those 18 is this. These verses speak of Jesus Christ having preached to some who had one time lived during the days of Noah while he was building an ark. That much is for sure. Uh, What is not sure is who they were, when it was that Christ preached to them, and what it was that Christ preached to them. And this is where all the second guessing kind of comes up. They do agree that Christ preached to those who were present during the construction of the ark, right before the rains came and destroyed the earth, and all of its inhabitants, saving Noah only and his wife and children and their wives. Again, that much is for sure. So the difficulty of the interpretation of this passage is not so much just in trying to understand the overall idea, and that's why we can disagree with certain different elements of the scholar's interpretation and still be orthodox in our view. Some people say that Jesus was preaching to those men and women who lived during the time of Noah while he was building the ark, 
And would, that would be the view, of course, that I would accept, and that's what I've been articulating for you. These would have been the men and women who didn't believe the message that God had given to Noah that told everyone that he was going to condemn the world and that the ark was being built to save the world and all who believed in God, which included animals and those who would come to build once again the new world. These are the men and women who refused to believe God who were, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 38, going on with their lives as if nothing that God had spoken through Noah had ever, ever really mattered. Who were, as Jesus said, those in those days before the flood were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Some would say that can't be the answer. It can't be that those are the individuals that Peter are talking about because 1 Peter 3.19 says that they're spirits. And that only means angels or fallen angels unless it's qualified in some way with a genitive that tells you that absolutely. To which, if you were here, I explained that spirits must be interpreted through the context, not just through whether or not it has a genitive. And again, genitive, someone asked me that last week, last time I spoke. It's a grammatical way of saying that it would have to be qualified to show possession or it would qualify the spirit spoken of in some way as being either of men or of angels. Yet it's the context, and we've been over this, the three golden rules of interpretation, context, context, context. It's the context of a passage that determines its meaning, not the artificial Greek syntax. Well, then people might say, if Peter wanted to speak of men, wouldn't he have used the word spirits? Instead, he probably would have used the word for soul in the same way he uses it in verse 20, a word that the New American Standard and Legacy Standard Bible translates as persons. But Peter, if you're following me, isn't referring to these people in the present tense as souls in verse 19, because they currently, as Peter writes later, are prisoners currently in prison. They're spirits who are prisoners in prison, verse 19, or in Hades, as Jesus illustrates in the story of Lazarus and the rich, young, rich man in Luke 16. Currently, they are spirits in prison, but when Christ preached to them, they were men and women on the earth. Peter uses the same kind of construction of logic in chapter 4, verse 6, when he speaks of the gospel being preached to those who are dead, which is a way of saying who are now dead, but were alive when the gospel was preached to them. So therefore, twice, once here in chapter 3, verse 19, again in chapter 4, verse 6, Peter is saying that the some form of preaching happened to these people when they were alive, but presently now are dead. And that's why, back to verse 19, it says, the spirits now in prison, now they are in prison, though the italics aren't inspired, but it is the idea that the translators have. Now they're in prison, but at the time, they weren't. Jesus made proclamation to those spirits who are now in prison, but during the time Jesus preached to them, they were those who were being, verse 20, disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So that statement is the qualifier of who they are and contextual indication to us of when he preached to them. Let me summarize that again. Who did Christ preach to? The disobedient. When did Christ preach to the disobedient people? In the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Now, legitimately, someone might say, 
But wait a second. Jesus wasn't born in the days of Noah. So how could he have preached to them during the time of the ark? That's a fair question. Answer, Jesus did a lot of things before he was born. Uh, He did them through his spirit. His spirit. Go back with me to chapter 1 of 1 Peter, which I think is a very clear indication of what this passage is addressing. 1 Peter chapter 1, and listen as I read verse 10 and 11. 1 Peter 1, chapter 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So Christ predicted his own sufferings to the prophets by way of his spirit in them before he was ever born. Do you see that? Does that make sense? Um, How could that be, still you might ask, because he is eternal. Christ is God. He existed before anyone was ever born, and he existed before he physically was born on earth as a man. We know that because John 1, verses 1 through 2 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So Peter here in chapter 1 is establishing a pattern for us to follow as we go through this letter, especially here in chapter 3. And that pattern being this, established in chapter 1, says that we need to understand that the Spirit of of Jesus Christ in them, in the prophets, the Spirit of Jesus Christ in them had predicted the sufferings of Christ that were to follow. So Christ was speaking through them, for he is in them by his Spirit even before he was born. When the prophets wrote their prophecies about the Messiah, they actually understood that the Messiah himself was moving within them, inspiration of the Spirit, to direct them in what they were saying concerning the truths that they were writing about him. That's some fascinating truths, if you ask me. That's mind-blowing stuff. Someone might say, well, what then is the difference, because I know you guys are thinking, I know you're Bereans, what is the difference between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ? Is the Holy Spirit and Jesus' Spirit the same, or are they different? Answer, look at the next verse in 1 Peter 1, verse 12, since you're already there. He speaks of the Spirit of Christ in verse 11. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been declared to you, through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So both the prophets... And the apostles were inspired by this same Spirit. The Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit are spoken of interchangeably here. This is something you see actually very common in the New Testament. Uh, if you're taking notes, Acts 16, 6 through 7. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and after they came to Messiah, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Holy Spirit... And the Spirit of Jesus, once again, the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit are spoken of at the same time in the same verse without any seeming explanation to say why there would be any variation. And the reason being is because they were used and understood interchangeably. I believe the difference, if if you're still processing what I'm saying, I know I'm going fast, uh, is in the usage of the times. That's usually the usage and how it's used and understand. And usually, just so you know, The reason that it would be either the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, is for a matter of emphasis. Let me show you. 
Sometimes the emphasis is on Christ when we see the spirit of Christ. Sometimes the emphasis is on God, meaning God the Father from whom the spirit of God comes. Sometimes the emphasis is on the holiness of the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit's character. But they're all used primarily to speak of the same person. Romans 8, 9, however, says, if you are not in the flesh, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Do you see how that happened? Interchangeably, the same spirit of God or spirit of Christ is spoken in the same context. So again, the scripture writers speak of the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ in the same breath, and not just for the sake of variety, but listen, for the sake of emphasis. That's important, for the sake of emphasis. So back to 1 Peter 1. Here in 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 11, I believe Peter is emphasizing the work of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit for a reason. Not only to suggest the fact that he had a pre-incarnate ministry before he ever was born, though he did, but also to suggest that this Christ that they worshipped, this Christ that died on a cross, that was resurrected from the dead and now had ascended to heaven, who is now invisible in their sight as they suffer in Asia Minor, is not inactive in their lives due to that invisibility. How do we know that? Because this invisible Christ who they wait for was once invisible in time as well before in the Old Testament in the days of Noah. He has been working through the prophets predicting his sufferings and the sufferings that are to come for all who love him way before he ever came to earth. And the issue is that Jesus is the unseen person of the... Let me say that again. The issue is that Christ as the unseen Messiah in the person of the Holy Spirit took up temporary invisible residence within the writers of the Old Testament as they explained his second epistle, enabled them to write very specific detailed prophecies of his glorious salvation through his spirit. Now you might say, why is this so important to understand? I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not picking what you're, I'm not picking up what you're putting down. Because here... Peter in chapter 3, verse 19 through 20 is saying, I believe the same thing. Christ, during the days of Noah, made proclamation to those disobedient men and women who lived during the building of the ark, and the proclamation he made to them was prophetic as well. What was his prophecy? What was he saying to them? Judgment is coming, the world will be destroyed. The earth will open up and water from below and above will flood the entire world. Stop eating and drinking and marrying and pretending the world's going to continue as it always has because you need to repent. You need to believe God. You need to beg God to forgive you for your sins through the promise of the coming one who will be the atonement for your sins. These are the things that Christ clearly could have been prophesying and preaching But listen to this. He didn't preach them in his own flesh and blood. He preached them through the man, Noah, in the same way he had predicted his own sufferings through the prophets before. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that? Because if you go to 2 Peter 2, verse 5, it calls Noah a preacher of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness. I'll read you the context here. For God, verse 4, 2 Peter 2, for God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them into chains of darkness being kept for judgment, 
and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. You can take note in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says that Noah, by faith, being warned by God about the things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he would condemn the world. How did Noah condemn the world through building the ark? Through reverentially, in the fear of God, continuing to build the ark as God has commanded him, regardless of what the world's reactions to him were, for 120 years. The more he built, the more condemnation fell upon them. The more he built, the more he was faithful, and the more they scorned him, the more the condemnation fell upon them. Regardless of what the world does, he was faithful to the word of God. And the more God's word is proclaimed to the guilty, the more guilt the unbelieving receive. Noah's righteous words, as well as his righteous life, literally was a condemnation upon the world that was about to die a sinner's death. The words that offered life became the sword of death. He was the preacher of righteousness, but it was a condemnation to those who would not believe. And I'm here to tell you that it's very, very likely that Peter is saying, the one who was informing that proclamation of warning and repentance was Jesus Christ himself. Noah was preaching Christ in Noah. Christ was in Noah, Christ living through his spirit in the life of Noah thousands of years before he was even born. And so we spent the last few weeks trying to develop that theme That was our Gordian knot, if you can now tell why I use that term. So for many reasons, this interpretation fits the context of the suffering and the glory very well as an encouragement to suffering saints because of the following. Think of this. If you're in first century Asia Minor or in 21st century America, Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile believers and so was Noah's, excuse me, Peter's readers. Noah was righteous in the midst of a wicked world, and Peter exhorts his readers to be righteous in the midst of a wicked world. Noah preached boldly to those around him, and Peter exhorts his readers to always give a defense for the gospel. Noah realized that judgment was soon to come upon the world, and Peter reminds his readers that God's judgment is certainly coming, perhaps soon, 1 Peter 4, 5, and following, we'll see also in 2 Peter 3. In Noah's day, God was patiently awaiting repentance before he brought judgment. And so when Peter wrote his epistles, the situation was the same. The Lord was still delaying judgment. Noah and a few others were saved. And Peter thus encourages his readers that they too will be saved. Because Christ has triumphed and all things have been made subject to him. All of these points, all of these points, these analogies point to and make even more sure the interpretation that could very well be what Peter had in his mind. Now, with that introduction and review, let's just approach the next part of the Gordian knot of this passage. And the difficulty comes with the rest of verses 20 and 22, 20 through 22, where Peter veers away from the subject of warning his readers to identify with Christ and Noah But now he focuses on having them identify with baptism as well. Now, if you've been following me, and God bless you if you have been, uh, uh, because I know it's like, whoa, 
It felt like a, a roller coaster. Uh, if you've been following me, you're probably saying, as soon as I said baptism, I know most of you, if not all of you, thought deep down inside, what? Baptism? Huh? Well, how in the world what we have just explained have anything to do with baptism? And if you're saying these things, let me tell you, I fully understand. First time I read this passage, second time, third time, fourth time, I had the same reaction. And part of the reason is that you're kind of wagging your heads is because modern American church is almost completely confused on the issue of baptism. When I say the word baptism, instantly you think of the ceremony that we do on Sunday night here at Grace Church where we have wonderful people coming in the waters of baptism, proclaiming the testimonies of Jesus Christ and getting dunked, right? That's your first reaction. You hear the word baptism, you think water, right? As soon as you do. You hear the word baptism and you think dunked, correct? That's where everybody thinks. And if, and if that's true, it's good because a, you're a good old-fashioned immersionist. Uh, and, and that's as you should be. <laughs> but let me say this, in fact, that the fact that you think of water when I say baptism immediately and in priority is actually unfortunate. Why? Because that's not what you should think of when you think of baptism. In fact, thinking that way has caused multitudes of scholars and lay people alike to get the remaining portion of verses 20 through 22 wrong for a very long time. Okay, you say, uh, how should I think about baptism? First, let me suggest that you think of, of baptism as, here's the word, dry. Think of baptism as dry. Dry, you say? Yes, dry. But I thought baptism was wet. Yes, that's the problem. And I'm going to explain that to you. When you hear the word baptism or baptize, first and foremost, train yourself to think of the word dry. Okay? Why do I say that? Because the act of baptism is a dry act before it becomes a wet symbol. Okay? It's a dry action before it's a wet symbol. What do I mean by that? Okay, do go with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at verse 1 and following. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Again, I'm reading for the Legacy Standard Bible. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate of the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Did you notice the pre-incarnate reference to Christ right there? Just for foreshadowing here. But I want to point out something to you, and that is our fathers, the Israelites he's speaking of, we're all baptized into Moses. That's a dry verse, right? No water there. You say, but it says they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and the sea is wet, right? <laughs> well, but yeah, but remember the story. <laughs> remember the story. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea without getting wet, right? They walked through the sea as if on dry land. That's the whole point of the analogy. Judgment is all around them in the water. The waters are literally a symbol of death hanging about them like in suspended animation, if you will. And yet they walk right through the waters completely untouched, dry, right? Dry. So then, in what way were they baptized into Moses? 
answer, and this is the second word I want you to remember when it comes to the idea of baptism. First is dry, and second is identification. Identification. Through identification or immersion, if you will, but it's still a dry idea, and I'll explain. Through identification or immersion into Moses. You see this idea in the word into Moses. They were identified with Moses. They were baptized unto him. They were, uh, if you will, identified with him and everything that he stood for. It has the idea of being completely immersed with Moses in his ministry, in his life, in his goals. Now, hold that thought. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. And when I hear you turning pages, that means you're still with me. And when I don't hear that, that means you're lost. But that's okay. I'm going to read it to you anyway. Romans 6, verse 1 through 3. And as I read, listen, as I read, I want you to think to yourself, is this a dry verse or is this a wet verse, okay? Is this a dry verse or is this a wet verse? Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. All right, survey says? Dry, thank you. If you're thinking wet, just don't say it. Uh, Why? Because dry has to do with identification, identifying with. So look at verse 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. We have been completely immersed or completely engulfed with Christ through our identification with him. Verse 5 says it this way. We have become united with him. How did that identification happen? We'll look at chapter 5. Just turn a page over. Verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Justified by faith. Because you're justified by faith, we have been identified with Christ. This baptism, this dry identification, has nothing to do with water. has to do with being justified by faith in Christ. Do you see that? Do you see where I'm going? This baptism, this baptism is the reality of which the water baptism is the symbol. But we are just not used to speaking that way. You know, it's just the way uh, cultural Christianity and just even those in the church the whole life, you think of baptism, you think of water. But when you say baptism, don't think water. You should think dry. Don't think wet. Why do I say that? That would be like saying, if I say marriage, that you think wedding ring. But... That's the symbol of marriage. Do you see what I'm saying? It's the symbol. It's not the reality. One time a pastor was trying to explain this to me when I got baptized here at Grace Church 30-something years ago. And he said this illustration, I'll never forget it. He goes, do you like cookies and milk? And I'm going, yeah. He said, you know what happens when you take that cookie and you put it in the milk and you let it just hang in the milk for a very long time and the milk and the, and the cookie just come, absorbs one another. They kind of become one. And, you know, I'm growing hungry and I'm going, yes, yes. <laughs> can, I, can I practice that? He said, that's the picture of baptism. 
That's the picture of baptism, fully integrated, fully identified with something, so much so that you become one with them. Now, true, he used a liquid kind of example when he used the milk to make that point, but he didn't need to because Paul is used to being buried in the same way. He uses it in the same way, being fully covered over, being fully immersed by the dirt and the grave. That's the idea. Remember in Luke 12, 49, Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am until it's accomplished. No water there, right? That's a dry verse, because Jesus is speaking of his complete identification with the cross. It, 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 isn't it interesting, I think, that when Jesus thought about his death about the cross, and when he thought, What is a word that I can use to explain my identification with the cross? He used the word baptize. Baptism. Jesus' baptism. For Jesus Christ, the word baptism in this context was the word that was associated with judgment of Almighty God in his crucifixion. I have a baptism to be baptized with and my whole being is constrained until that is accomplished. Now go back to 1 Peter 3. And again, this is fresh in your mind and you're doing great. Remembering what I said about baptism. Remember, it has a dry meaning. It has an identification meaning first before anything else. So now go back to verse 20. Peter says that these wicked men and women who Christ preached to were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting during the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark. Listen, in which, meaning the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. He says that during the time when disobedient people in the days of Noah had finally exhausted the patience of God, that that same ark that Noah built, that was a sign of condemnation to them, as Hebrews told us, actually carried eight persons, Noah and his wife and children and their spouses, safely through the water. What brought them safely through the water? The ark. Do you see that? The ark brought them safely through the water. Verse 21, and this is where it gets tricky. Peter writes, corresponding to that. Wait a second. Wait a second. Corresponding to what? Corresponding to what? Well, it seems best to connect this back to the whole idea of speaking of the ark that brought eight persons safely through the water. Corresponding to that ark and how it brought eight persons safely through the water. What water? The water that flooded the entire world at the time, the water of judgment against the world, corresponding to that idea, verse 21, baptism now saves you. Now, I bet you a dollar, I don't really have it, but regardless of what I just told you, most of you automatically thought of yourself the word wet when I mentioned baptism, right? It's just, it's just a knee-jerk reaction. I'm saying think cry, and you're going wet. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's, like, it's almost like a spiritual um, Tourette's syndrome where you don't know. It's just, it's just dry. It's wet. Uh, uh, but Tom, sorry. But Tom, they say water is all over the verse. It's all over. How can I think about baptism in a dry way when the whole world just got flooded with water the verse before? And I understand that. I really do. But this is where you need to think with me here. You just need to really, really concentrate. Peter says baptism saves you. Okay? Baptism saves you. Now, when he says baptism saves you, your next thought is, what? Baptism can't save you, right? Right? You'd be right because you'd be thinking with a wet perspective. Right? 
Baptism, wet baptism can't save you. He's not talking about water. How do I know? Because he tells us. Look at the next phase in verse 21. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So, see, it's not water he's talking about. And even Peter himself knew that his readers would get confused, so he makes it clear. He's not talking about water, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So, what is he talking about? Well, let's go through it again. Corresponding to that, to the fact that the ark brought eight souls safely through the waters of judgment, you can see that in that example... That baptism now saves you. Not the water saves you because the water drowned the whole earth. But the safe passage through the water in the ark is the corresponding idea that saved them. Remember what baptism is? Identification with. Immersion with. Being a part of. Totally contained within. So the idea of baptism here is seen in the dry sense. Though there's water everywhere in the verse. Baptism being seen through those lone survivors who were carried to safely, safety through the waters of destruction and death in an ark that protected them from harm, that's just like baptism as well. When you're baptized into Christ, you are in essence protected from the judgment surrounding you of, of God through faith. You enter into the ark. You are identified so much so with him that you are, as it were, being brought through the dangerous flood of God's overwhelming judgment on this wicked world to the beauty and safety and the protection of heaven. It's not the water that defines baptism, but look at the end of verse 21. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's probably the best definition in scripture of a truly dry baptism. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not a washing away of the filth of your sin as you faith is professed in the waters of baptism. Uh, the cults teach that. That's baptismal regeneration. We know it's not that. But rather, true baptism occurs when you've appealed to God for a good conscience by trusting in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to save you from the penalty of sin before God. What is an appeal to God of a good conscience speaking of? He's speaking of begging God to cleanse your heart. Begging God to cleanse your mind from sin. He's talking about asking God to show you mercy and grace and compassion. And the foundation of your appeal is your total trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not anything to do with yourself. Paul said it this way in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So Peter is saying to us here, the water of baptism is only a picture. It's a picture of the cleansing which comes to us from our sins in Jesus Christ. It also, in another sense, is a picture of the judgment from which we need to be saved and protected. Now we're talking wet, just so you understand. Water not only cleanses, but water also can destroy. I've baptized a lot of people here at Grace Church, and I tell them sometimes, I say, you know, if I keep you down there too long... It's over, right? I'm going to bring you up. I'm going to bring you out of that death place because if I keep you in that place, you know, it doesn't symbolize anything except you're gone. So it is a symbol of the judgment, but it's also a symbol of the deliverance out of the judgment. It's a sense of not only just water cleanse, but it can destroy. 
And when we use water in baptism, it's not just a symbol of cleansing power. It's also a symbol of the awesome judgment of God. Noah and his family were the only saved people because they came into the ark in which they could hide through the judgment of the entire world. Pastor John MacArthur states it so succinctly, I have to quote him here in his entirety. He says this, Peter is saying, just like Noah was placed with his sons and their wives in the ark of safety, and they went through the judgment, they didn't miss it, they didn't really escape it, they were preserved in it, so you have been immersed in some kind of protective ark that is taking you through the judgment. They were put into the waters of judgment. The waters of judgment fell down on top of them, but they were incarcerated in a haven of safety. And he is saying, meaning Peter, we as believers are put into the great waters of judgment and we too are incarcerated in a haven of safety. What is that incarcerated haven of safety? Our union in Christ. Our union in Jesus Christ. There are many songs that I love singing here at Grace Church. Some of them are, of course, more familiar than others. But this particular song, Before the Throne of God Above, says it so beautifully and it acts as our conclusion today. The author says, Behold him there, the risen lamb. My perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ, my savior and my God. With Christ, my savior and my God. One in himself, he says, I cannot die. Probably the most beautiful passage in the entire song. I cannot die. Why? Because I am baptized in him. Does that make sense? I am baptized in him. Well, let's pray. Father, your word is an amazing puzzle at times. It is hard to understand, as Peter said to the Apostle Paul about the Apostle Paul, But with just a little bit more digging and all of the Bereans here, we start to uncover piece by piece how it all comes together. We could be confused, but we now understand baptism, our oneness in you, our oneness in Christ, our identification is all that truly matters. You are the one, Lord Jesus with whom we are identified, whom we are in. And it is you, Lord Jesus, that takes us not out of the waters of judgment, but carries us safely through them. Though we feel the billows going against the boat, though we feel the harshness of this world and its cruelty, we are safe in you. And we thank you for that privilege that none of us deserve. Bless the rest of our day, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.